0: By becoming a monthly patron, you'll also receive our weekly newsletter.
1: Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. I'm Jonathan Kay, Quillette's Canadian editor. When we talk about the way that video has helped fuel the movement that's sometimes described as the intellectual dark web, we often think about famous thinkers such as Jordan Peterson delivering speeches or lectures on YouTube and other social media platforms. But Washington, D.C.-based documentarian Rob Monts co-founder and CEO of Good Kid Productions, takes a more ambitious approach. Monts has produced tightly narrated, inventively shot documentaries about American politics and campus life that are both intellectually penetrating and surprisingly funny. His 2017 documentary, Silence You, Part 2, What Has Yale Become?, published on We the Internet TV, won the 2018 Reason Video Prize, and his work has been covered in The Economist, The New York Times, and The Washington Post. In late March, I spoke to Rob about his work. Here are excerpts from that conversation, along with some extended excerpts from four of his acclaimed documentaries. Are you a video documentarian who found the intellectual dark web, or are you an IDW member who taught himself video skills?
2: That's a good first question. Well, given that when I first started making videos, the IDW didn't exist, I think it's the first one. Um, But I've started this production company with another awesome video producer out here in Washington, D.C. And, And explicitly, kind of the core thesis of our business is that the emergence of the IDW indicates that there is a deep appetite for precisely the kind of videos that we want to make. There's an appetite for it, and there's also an immense scarcity of the kind of online documentary films IDW people are looking to consume. So it certainly factors into our overall business strategy. But of course, we want to make stuff that's broadly appealing to people that have no idea who uh, Jordan Peterson is.
1: I went to something called MythCon a few months ago in Milwaukee. A really interesting meetup that was just full of people who were devoted to YouTube culture. And they seemed to get all their news from watching YouTubers. But most of the people they followed on YouTube were guy in a basement type video thing where you'd have somebody who was eloquent and lucid. But, you know, it was something like PewDiePie. You don't do that at all. You are producing pretty high-end, narrated, scored, sophisticated video product. How do you make your product competitive in an environment where a lot of people are just consuming stuff that can be produced in anybody's basement in a matter of minutes?
2: Am I obligated to act like I know the answer to that question? (laughs) I know it's a really good point. I mean, and I've seen, you know, I've seen some of the view counts for stuff that I consider to be even if it's ideologically aligned with the kind of, you know, Quillette Good Kid Productions worldview, I don't don't think it's particularly visually compelling and I don't think it's particularly intellectually sophisticated. That, right, is someone just like setting up a RED camera in their basement and talking directly to it. That gets, you know, astronomically huge viewership numbers, something that maybe they took no more than 90 minutes to put together. While I'll slave over something for you know six weeks, eight weeks, and it'll do a fraction of that. The only stuff that I'm interested in doing are the kind of docs that operate at the highest possible level of intellectual, aesthetic, and narrative technique. So it's I, I kind of almost this is this is way too self glorifying, uh, but like I have no organic interest. In making things that are much more disposable, and any and any conceive under any conceivable definition, if that makes sense. So the only stuff I like making is things that you are slaving over each individual frame, to to ensure that it's maximally compelling and entertaining and illuminating for the viewer. And the more disposable stuff, I don't watch it myself, and I have no interest in making it. But that does not mean <laughs> that doesn't mean that it's a better business prospect on my end. <laughs> I think the disposable stuff might be might be a little bit easier to monetize, but I don't know.
1: Well, rather than than tell people about this stuff, let's show them a little bit of it. Uh, here's a clip from your 2018 video, Trump as Destiny, why the reality show presidency was inevitable.
0: The Kennedy's self-consciously attached beautiful, royalist ideal to JFK's presidency. This, of course, is a picture
1: of uh, my wife, uh, Jackie, and my daughter, Caroline.
0: I think every woman wants to feel needed. And in politics, you are. Isn't she charming? This notion of Camelot, this magical moment. He carried the image of youth, strength, and vigor. Kennedy continues to be American citizen's most revered president.
1: I was just kind of in awe of being near such a great person. America, its power, prestige, and direction, all ultimately will come to rest upon the next president of the United States.
2: The martyred Christ of
1: American democracy.
2: We will miss a great friend and a true Christian. We now know, of course, that the Kennedy iconography was a cynically constructed fabrication. Kennedy was a heavy amphetamine user, suffered from a debilitating hormonal disorder, and was a reckless sex addict who shared a lover with a Chicago mob boss.
1: In that video, you're not making a simplistic argument in favor of Trump or against Trump. You're actually making a historical argument about the way the role of president emerged during the 20th century, beginning with FDR and leading up into the 21st century in Trump. Were you always interested in American history?
2: No, I wasn't. Actually, my academic background, at least in high school, was mostly mathematics, actually. That's kind of what I excelled at. And then I got pretty into analytical philosophy when I was at Brown. I did take a class with Gordon Wood at Brown University while I was there, who's a famed historian of the American Revolution. Well,
1: a famed, I believe, left of center Howard Zinn type.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yo, you said it. You said it. I didn't say anything. I didn't say anything. I got, I, I got a gentleman's B in that class.
1: But you obviously got something out of university. I I believe there was a a quote from you in your your video about Brown University, which we'll talk about in a minute, where you say something like, well, when I went to Brown University, I burned off my own ego and narcissism and navel-gazing instincts through the act of debate. Tell me about that process.
2: My main activity when I was at Brown University was on the debate team through uh, an association called the American Parliamentary Debate Association, which is kind of um uh it's lincoln douglas style debate as opposed to policy debate which means that it's it's much more rhetorical and it's a little bit more loosey-goosey when it comes to the topics that are debated and it includes all the elite schools on the east coast of the united states and then also the elite elite schools on the other coast like university of chicago and so every single weekend i'd be going to debate tournaments in which I am throwing my brain against some of the smartest people in the entire country. Like not just people that go on to clerk for the Supreme Court, but like people that go on to become Supreme Court justices. And also one of the essential features of APTA, the Debate Association, is about half the time you don't get to choose what topic you debate and you don't get to choose what side of the debate you take, right? It's exactly the kind of forced devil's advocacy that higher ed should be regularly requiring of students. That's what I got from debate tournaments. And that process, I mean, it's funny, just the older I get, the more I realize how profoundly formative it was. And I wasn't even that good. I mean, I wasn't even that good. I mean, there are people that were just next level intelligent that would just crush me on a regular basis but but having that regular exercise was just a a really formative experience and um and it's what kind of made me love the academic enterprise when properly executed
1: you seem to have a sense of self-awareness and humor about the way you convey ideas and i'm thinking in particular your series silence you is the university killing free speech and open debate which sounds like it's going to tackle really serious subjects which it does but you have this kind of like goofy jazzy music which comes in just when (laughs) things are getting heavy is that a deliberate choice that you're trying to bring down the temperature of some of these discussions
2: i'm just trying to be entertaining and stuff that's super self-serious normally fails in that
1: do you compose your own music
2: no, it's, most, it's stuff that I find and, and license. I mean, that stuff is, I, I would say that the music that I use and also my presentational style, which has proven to be a little bit divisive in the comment section, is straight up just stuff that I love. It's like, I just like love 90s hip hop. In all its forms, both in its presentation and audibly, and that's just reflected in the aesthetics of the things that I I like to produce. Well, in one of your
1: videos, you were wearing a green jacket. Uh, Who does your wardrobe?
2: (laughs) That green jacket is also quite divisive, quite divisive. I don't give a shit. I like it. And now, now even more so, I like if people don't like things, I just make a point to double down on them for the next videos. Just 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 as a as a point of principle.
1: You're not a conventional culture warrior, and I'm thinking your video about some of the ideological goings on at Brown University, just when things are getting pretty heavy, like halfway through, you look at the camera and say, You know what? I have privilege. I get that you agree with the protesters that you're documenting in some respect, and then you go into some detail about just how much privilege you have. Can you talk about that?
2: Yeah, my um, that was sort of a part that I insisted on including. I, I think it was, um, well, just a, a, as a broader purpose, increasingly in my life, I find myself both bored and repulsed by any neat partisan politics just like neat tribalization i i'm, I'm increasingly like kind of intellectually ideologically polyamorous and that i definitely come from a center right position but i don't feel obligated to you know uphold the the dogmas of my chosen tribe and it's funny that i mean i i my my training professionally was in libertarian circles and it's remarkable how tribalistic a political th- Philosophy that is ostensibly based on radical individualism can become right, and uh, I try as much as possible to acknowledge the complexity whenever I can. Like when um, when someone's trying to criticize the the kind of standard social justice warrior fixation on white privilege, right? I think just the knee jerk complete dismissal that racial bias doesn't in any way advantage or disadvantage people in America. Uh, it's it's both intellectually dishonest, but it also doesn't really serve as an effective critique when you're, when you're just so absolutist. I still think the audience for very hyper-partisan stuff is much larger than the audience, <laughs> what it is that I'm making. But um, I'd rather just quit and go to law school if I have to do that junky partisan stuff in order to make a career out of this.
1: So you don't want to be Tucker Carlson in a green jacket? <laughs>
2: No, and his house is much nicer than mine. Uh, he makes quite a bit of money, uh, but it's just not – I'm not feeling that. I'm not feeling that at all. I got to tell you, it's been a weird experience this last week. I don't know if this is going to be interesting, but it was a combination of um, – I, I did a, a short video profile of Judith Butler that uh, has that did pretty well on YouTube and then ended up, ended up getting shared – on Facebook by Wait,
1: wait, I'm gonna I'm gonna hold you right there. Okay. We're gonna play a segment of that video right now.
2: It's now gospel among many fashionable feminists that gender is a social construct. That gender is entirely made up. Just take when SNL cast member Colin Jost told this joke on national TV. The dating app Tinder announced a new feature this week which gives users 37 different gender identity options. It's called, Why Democrats Lost the (laughs) election. Jost was widely denounced as a bigot, a regressive idiot. You see, gender actually comes in near limitless varieties, and the traditional gender binary is simply an oppressive fiction. That idea is the handiwork of one woman. Judith Butler is one of the most celebrated academics of her generation. Hers is a story of grand intellectual conquest. The story starts in the 1970s. Higher ed is flooded with a wave of fashionable postmodern French intellectuals. Their central mission? Deconstructing our common understanding of words like justice, mental illness, patriotism, these aren't natural phenomena, you see. They are social constructions, entirely artificial conventions with no connection to objective reality, designed by the powerful to control you. institutions là sont faites pour transmettre les ordres, les and appliquer et punir euh, les gens qui n'obéissent pas.
0: Mais je crois.
2: Butler is the pure product of this milieu. In 1990, she released the book that rocketed her to global fame, Gender Trouble. There's nothing fixed or natural about our gender identity. It's a pathway that's given to us.
1: That's an excerpt from Architects of Woke, Judith Butler's War on Science, a recently released video by our guest, Rob Montz. Tell me about the larger theme of the video.
2: Well, yeah, well, so that video is sort of a deconstruction of this, I think, pretty repulsive intellectual charlatan by the name of, of uh, Judith Butler, not to, be, not to be overly ad hominem, but someone who I think has really had quite a, a corrupting and pernicious influence uh, and represents a, a corrosion and an undermining of, of what feminism was was really about. And it's part of a series that I'm doing with this group called Dangerous Documentaries here in Washington, D.C. I was working on the second one when you called me. But that video ended up getting shared by Milo Yilanopoulos on his Facebook page. Uh, Milo is someone that I'm on the record of not liking and thinking, uh, unfortunately, contributes to some of the poison and the cruelty that has now become a standard issue feature in American politics. But he was, I guess, an enthusiastic champion of the video. At the same time, uh, my, the, the documentary about the presidency that you shared, which is critical of Trump has sort of gotten a second life in the wake of some recent political developments here in Washington, D.C., in which President Trump uh, attempted to use the national emergency powers to secure some funding for a border wall. And that got people suddenly jazzed up again about the imperial presidency and executive overreach. And, and even,
1: even many Republicans, a minority of Republicans, but many Republicans are opposed to Trump's move on that.
2: There are some, not as many as should be, not as many Many of them have capitulated to it. But just to finish what is already a too long story is that in turn brought a bunch of Trump fans to the video who proceeded to accuse me over and over again of this new thing. I, I never, It's called, uh, they accuse me of being a soy boy. Have you ever heard of soy boy?
1: I think I've seen one or two references to it and okay. pretended I knew what it meant, but I have no idea um, what it means.
2: Well, I, 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 I think it basically just means you're a castrated beta male whose only possible reason for for, for uh, criticizing Trump is that you're envious of his hyper-masculine virility or oh, something are a effect. You're a cuck. I'm, uh, yeah, I'm a oh. cuck. I'm a cuck. Okay. And people can, they don't have to do much deep digging to see that I've actually sired several human beings with a, a female homo sapien. But, but apparently um, I'm still a soy boy. But it was a very odd... As an odd sensation to to be both complimented by, but then also ridiculed by the kind of you know Trump MAGA crew. You work at Quillette. You can tell me how you guys like how you guys think about the business of attempting to not simply play to the crowd and not conform to these neat partisan categories. I part of me thinks that there is going to be a sufficient appetite for it. But part of me also sometimes worries maybe people just want Tucker Carlson and Rachel Maddow. They just want someone who won't come with any nuance or complexity that will just sort of feed them their neat little partisan stories so that they can stay angry at the evil other on the other side of the political spectrum.
1: Well, Quillette does get it from both sides, uh, much as it sounds like you do. Um, I've never been called a soy boy, but— I've been called, you know, <laughs> a fake conservative or... Yeah, yeah, equivalent yeah, of, course. Of, of Rhino. But what's interesting is you do learn the different kinds of trolls. Like, I get trolled from the right and I get trolled from the left. But th- what's interesting is the methodology. Right-wing trolls tend to be aggressive. They're like, delete your account, you're, you're a cuck, you're this, you're that. Uh, screw you, screw you, screw you. You're what's wrong with the human race. Okay, fair enough. Left-wing trolls tend to be more passive-aggressive, it's more like you're hurting me, you're hurting everybody, you yeah, have to stop you have to stop hurting people and to ensure you don't hurt people, we're gonna try and make you lose your job. We don't want you to lose yeah. your job, but that's the only way we can stop all the pain. So yeah, ultimately yeah. I actually prefer the right wing trolls because they're so upfront. They don't pretend that they care about me and the world. They they're very upfront with the fact that they have this like very crude, sometimes bigoted worldview, and that's their worldview. I don't conform to it, so fuck me. Uh, and I prefer that to the more cynical approach that pretends as if it's a matter of concern for the human race, even though in both cases, it's really just about projecting ideological power.
2: So and, and I feel that crunch, but then every once in you're, I mean, this vid, I have a video coming out probably tomorrow or Monday that's about the evils of Instagram for young girls. And it's part of a, a much broader hyper crotchety technophobia that I've fallen into in my late 30s. I, as part of that, I, I wonder how distorted my position is on American politics because particularly of Twitter and – there, that, that maybe there is a hope that there is a moderate middle that I just miss because I spend too much time no, on that goddamn website.
1: No, there isn't any. No. Uh, <laughs> it's, 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 it's not as if you're just like too dense to find the moderate middle. Uh, look, there are people who try and uh, be centrists, no. but you know you can be Tucker Carlson and live in a big house, or you can be Rob Monts and lives live in a smaller house. Uh, speaking of which. Making high-end videos is expensive. You have your own production company, but you've also produced video for something called We the Internet TV uh, and Reason TV. At the end of the day, how much does it cost to make 10 minutes of great narrative video? And and who is ultimately paying the bills for this?
2: Yeah, so I mean, we are a for-profit operation. And like slightly over half of our client portfolio is... It's nonprofit channels like We the Internet, like Dangerous Documentaries, that contract with with us because they like the voice that we bring, and it's about having having me be on camera doing my like cool hip hop stylings or not so cool hip hop stylings. But how
1: do they monetize that? How do they, It's like where in the YouTube age when everyone's giving away everything for free, how do they monetize that?
2: I actually don't know. I mean, for me, they they pay us, they pay me money. Um,
1: but it's also not like. Paper bags full of money from the Koch brothers.
2: Uh, no, I'd love to find those. I'd love. <laughs> yeah. I would certainly. Everyone take accuses them.
1: me of that, and I'm like, fine, <laughs> but give me the money. And that, like, <laughs> and, you know, I'm getting the worst of both worlds. They accuse me of it, but I don't get the cash.
2: I, that's that's definitely a double bind. There. Also, that Koch. Can I just do a quick thing? I'm sorry. This is. This may be boring. I've worked with the Koch Foundation before. They're not a primary client of mine, and. People can be free to criticize the particulars of their policy positions, but that basically never happens. They're just this like all-purpose boogeyman. And whenever someone wants to start ranting to me about the Koch brothers, are you referring to like the actual Koch, like the this kind of fake phantasm you've heard about from like half of a Harry Reid floor speech? Or are you talking about the actual Koch brothers who came out in favor of gay marriage 30 years before Hillary Clinton? Or that have poured substantial amounts of money into reforming mandatory minimum sentencing laws, which last time I checked, don't primarily victimize white corporate executives. That doesn't mean that I don't agree with the entirety of their policy agenda. And you can can be critical of the energy industry or libertarian ideology more generally. But it's like, can someone please be a goddamn grown-up and actually know what these guys stand for before you start ranting about them on Facebook? It's all just... It's all just this token and this, and this signaling. I mean this is a huge thing that I discovered during the research and development process for the Judith Butler documentary that we, they, we we mentioned where Butler is kind of the positive inverse of that where her acolytes, from what I can tell, the vast majority of them have not read much of her stuff. They just kind of use her as this one-dimensional token to – to demonstrate and advertise their wokeness when it comes to gender politics. If you actually do the extremely unpleasant work of reading Judith Butler, the few parts of it that are actually comprehensible and not disgustingly laden with obscure jargon, the stuff that's comprehensible often contradicts, contradicts itself and also contradicts some of the core tenets of some of the more radical gender theories that are now kind of percolating through the internet. Like, there's, I think a lot of people that, I think a lot of transgendered people would actually find what Judith Butler writes to be offensive and contradictory to their experience. But it's kind of like that never comes up because people, don't really engage with her ideas properly. They just kind of use her as a token to, to signal their tribal allegiances. So
1: the opposite of the Koch brothers, as it were. Yeah, I guess so. We're going to play a clip now from your video that, that you did about your alma mater, uh, Brown University. And this is a scene where a bunch of students occupied the president's office and nominally tried to engage the president in a sort of debate. And you can hear the president trying to get a, a word in edgewise. I used to make a suggestion, I'm sorry, no, 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 I'm, I'm sorry, I just want to, can we just have a conversation? Yeah. But no, no. But the problem, no, the problem, the no. problem that they're having is heterosexual white males have always dominated the space, and so some like one that. in which heterosexual oh. white Homosexual, white males are at the top of the hierarchy. This
2: is not a grand battle against institutionalized injustice. This is an addiction to indignation. We also have obligations like being in class. You can't focus on something. We have to focus
1: on in class, That was from Silence You Is the University Killing Free Speech and Open Debate? A video by my guest, Rob Monts. Rob, can you tell us what's happening in that video? And also, You talk about students having a, quote, addiction to indignation, end quote. Explain that too.
2: So I think one of the more remarkable things about these super pernicious anti-speech trends that have been happening on elite college campuses is how the number, like the percentage of the student body that is truly radicalized and would do something like occupy the president's office or shout down the provost, is actually relatively small. But th- the mystery is, if they're so small, why is it that they're able to get the administration to bend to their will and to cut them enormous checks, right? Why, why is it that the people that run these schools are so quick to wilt to what is ultimately a minority of the student body? But,
1: but if I could just interrupt, in this video, you've got, looks like a couple of dozen students, and from what I understand... They did this in response to an action that that Brown University did that you would have thought they would have applauded. Can you give a little bit of the backstory on this?
2: It was one of those kind of standard issue diversity and inclusivity programs where the university announces, I think it was a $200 million commitment to improving inclusivity. Uh, Very small slices of that program, I think, are justified. A lot of it is just very vague promise-making. And students were unsatisfied with that it didn't go far enough and they responded by occupying the president's office shouting down the provost and then uh when they uh, had a conversation with the university president saying that they they couldn't go to class because they were fighting for their lives because of the oppressive racist tyranny that was everywhere on campus at Brown University.
1: Okay, wait, I got to interrupt you there. Baseline, factually, roughly speaking, how many hate-motivated murders have taken place on Brown University campus over the last decade?
2: I, I would guess I would guess zero. I don't think I need to Google it.
1: <laughs> that we know of. That we know
2: of. Right. Well, who's keeping it from us, though? <laughs> right. And yeah, I mean, I'm not the first. Heather McDonald makes this point much more uh, acidly than I ever could, but that these elite university campuses are the least racist places on planet earth but you can you can believe that while also believing of course racism persists in american and privilege society exists. and and privilege certainly exists but the problem is for for the standard like far leftist you know political paradigm that used to I mean that is that that it's important to debunk and to criticize on college campuses because it's now seeped out into the mainstream has become the operating political software for a lot of the elite institutions in, in my country, in the United States. And in that paradigm, the average member, the only privilege they care about is the one that positions them lower on the power totem pole, right? So, for example, um, for the the sequel to that Brown University mini doc, which is one that I did about Yale, related to this kind of now infamous 2015 incident where a tenured professor at the school gets shouted down in the courtyard because of a letter related to Halloween costumes and cultural appropriation. One of the main people that shouts him down that is unbelievably disrespectful to him she happens to be – she's a black woman. So on one particular privilege metric, she's uh, deeply disadvantaged. But if you just dig into her biography a little bit, she grew up in a cushy suburb in Connecticut and has two highly successful and rich uh, professional parents. But that, that other metric of privilege in which she's born into like a stable, nuclear, wealthy family that invests in her education – oh, and she also went to Exeter – that stuff doesn't factor in when it comes to calculating privilege, that she is just by definition, dramatically less privileged than some white kid born on the outskirts of Sioux Falls, South Dakota to an opioid addicted mom, right? Because that person has white skin, definitionally, they all have skin. Right, although just privilege.
1: to be clear, I lived a pretty privileged life. Sounds like you lived a pretty privileged life in LA. So we're two privileged guys talking about somebody else who has privilege
2: right (laughs) that's (laughs) well that's actually what that's what a lot of the the conversation about uh the campus free speech crisis happens to be unfortunately (laughs) that's a fair point that's a fair point I mean – and can I just make another point, which is for the campus free speech stuff, I always make a a, – I try to make it clear that this is a phenomenon that is largely confined to the elite college campus. There's actually a study that came out from Brookings Institute here in Washington, D.C. that showed a very tight correlation between the average annual tuition of a given institution – And the frequency of deplatforming or anti-speech acts among the college students, that the the more expensive it gets, the more likely kids are to demand that people that they don't like don't get to speak.
1: Well, Exhibit A, Sarah Lawrence uh, in in New York State, uh, which I think last time I checked might have been the most expensive college in the United States. And of course, recent controversy there, one of the professors Uh, who wrote an op-ed for the New York Times that students didn't like. They're trying to run them off campus.
2: In in a certain way, and I really delve into this with the the sequel to the Brown Doc that I did through We the Internet, where when you pay that much for an education, part of what you want is an accommodating intellectual environment. If you're going to pay $50,000 a year, you want a fancy high-end cafeteria, you want world-class gym facilities. Okay,
1: I'm going to stop you right there because I'm going to play that segment. This is about Yale University in particular, my own alma mater. It's where I went to law school. In the video, you are playing footage of actual Yale University promotional video. And this furthers your idea that that this is actually more about customer satisfaction than creating an intellectual environment. So let's listen to that
0: has become sort of all-purpose entertainment warehouse. place to have a good time rather than receive an education.
2: It's not about what we expect from you. It's about what we can do for you. That's the difference between being a student and being a customer. He brings in a whole bunch of really cute baby animals and you can pet them
1: there was a food parade and the egg was amazing then i get to know my residential college dining hall
2: staff and they can really accommodate my needs very own room studio there are still pockets of genuine undergraduate intellectualism at yale but the predominant campus culture seems to be uh well we eat
0: study breaks for nighttime
1: snacks oh. that was an excerpt from silence you part two what has yale become by our quillette podcast guest rob Monts. a lot of people would hear that and think that this is like an ad for a fast food restaurant or something is, is this typical of other universities
2: yeah i refer to it as the gilded camp and uh uh, William, William Dereischewitz, who's one of the prominent voices in that doc, says how it's it's this it's a switch from student to customer. It's from what the student can learn to what the professors can do for them.
1: This isn't really an ideological trend. It has ideological effects, but it's it's almost more of like a capitalist consumer preference trend.
2: Yeah, I know it gets weird. Yeah, I know. That's kind of part of that doc starts with me saying this is an extraordinarily famous kind of viral event of this, of this president being shouted down in the courtyard, but it doesn't mean what you think it means.
1: Well, you say, I found my scandal, but it wasn't any scandal to do with Marxism or Judith Butler or Derrida or Foucault. You must have spoken to many professors who were upset at the way their universities have been taken over, essentially by their marketing departments.
2: Right. Well, it's not their marketing departments. It's their it's their their administration, the the bloated bureaucracy, uh, and that's I show how there's this odd alliance between this ever expanding leviathan of the administration. So not professors, not not academics, but career bureaucrats, and these kind of self made undergraduate radicals. The administration actually fuels and rejoices in these acts of apparent student suffering because it justifies the creation of a new vice provost of diversity and inclusion.
1: I read a statistic that said one of the big universities in Michigan has as many as 100 people just in their diversity department. Does that sound credible to you?
2: It does. I don't know those stats, but I know a couple of the stats related to salary figures in the UC system. I'm originally from Southern California. And a lot of these people with these vague titles related to diversity and inclusion make many multiples of what an established tenured professor would make. And so it's a demonstration of the university's priorities that they've decided to invest in that as opposed to invest in professors. And frankly, I, I mean, I obviously have some serious problems with the lack of ideological diversity on these campuses, but I would rather these schools be taking that money and spending it on professors, even if they're on the, you know, the, the opposite side of the ideological spectrum, because at least professors operate within the realm of ideas and have some sort of commitment to the academic enterprise. The, the, the bureaucrats are a much more malign force, that they don't really trade in kind of reason and logic and evidence. Their job is mostly just to release memos and go to conferences. And I think that they're another essential part of why a very small group of students can wield just tremendous power on these campuses.
1: Because those faculty members leverage that minority of students to project their own power.
2: Yeah, so it's kind of an odd alliance. But then all, there's other factors as well. Obviously, like uh, Greg Lukinoff and Jonathan Hyde in their book, The Coddling of the American Mind, also go through some very particular broken ways that iGen, the generation that came after millennials, has been raised that makes them particularly psychologically fragile and incapable of autonomously navigating conflict.
1: Okay, so I'm gonna let you go soon, but I did want to ask you one last question. One of the videos you made about, of all things, streetcars, I believe it's called The Secret Life of Streetcars?
2: The secret, uh, I think it's a scam of streetcars. <laughs> yeah, my position is...
1: Because uh... <laughs> I clicked on it thinking, oh cool, another huge streetcar fan like me. No, uh, no, I live in Toronto, Uh, which has the second largest light rail network in North America. Uh, We started our streetcar system in 1861, before Canada itself was born. 95 million riders on the Toronto streetcar system every year. What kind of soy boy doesn't like (laughs) streetcars?
2: Oh, man. Well, is yours is yours elevated? Does it have a dedicated lane or it, no? Absolutely that's,
1: not. That's that's that would be elitist. It's right there at street level for the common man and woman to use.
2: Well, okay, you know, uh, you've been such a gracious host. I don't want to attack the Toronto streetcar system, but in Washington D.C., at least, it was very clear that the transportation technocrats wanted a big, large, hulking. Monument to their intelligence and their progressive urban design insights, and they ended up spending ungodly amounts of money and going way over budget to create this streetcar that is not an essential transportation backbone for the the city, but actually just runs about two miles in an area that already has a, already has a ton of, uh, of buses. And part of my point is, uh, as someone who is a fan of intelligent investments in public transportation. That money, if you're looking to do as much as you can to help working people get to their jobs, would be a much better spent on basically high-speed buses. But the if, if you're in the transportation department in Washington, D.C., you don't want to be cutting checks to things as, as boring and uninspired as additional bus lines. You want some big-ass event that you can have lots of cameras, and do a big unveiling ceremony at. So that's that's how it's been executed here. That doesn't mean that light rail definitionally can't be useful, but at least the way that it was done in D.C. was incompetent.
1: So the name of that video is The Secret Scam of Streetcars.
2: That was done through Reason TV. So I worked for about a year at... Uh, reason tv which is the the youtube offshoot of reason magazine which is a libertarian magazine here in washington dc
1: regardless of what you think of streetcars, that is the video where people can see you in the green jacket
2: <laughs> and my full soy boy attire
1: <laughs> that's right um and if you want to see all of rob Monts's videos they are at robmonts.com rob thank you so much for being on the quillette podcast
2: jonathan thank you so much for having me i'm a big fan of the work you guys do